Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. I'm your host, Troy, my pronouns are he, him, and I'm joined by my classically educated philosopher friend. Oh, my name's Ed. My pronouns are they and them, and uh, even though I did take a fair number of classics classes and it formed kind of the backbone of my art history education, I wouldn't say I'm classically educated. Ah, but like Achilles before Troy, you're near Troy? I am somewhat near a Troy, although I will say, I don't know, Achilles was a dick. That's, that was my big takeaway from reading the Iliad. I look. I had much more sympathy for Hector. Look, I have to say, if you think about it in modern terms, all the great Greek warrior heroes of the Iliad, with like the exception of Odysseus, were total jock football bros. <laughs> Bro, we gotta we gotta go play our morning games. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're total jock football bros. Like, oh yeah, bro, come on, come out and fight me, bro. Come on, bro. And Odysseus is just over in the corner being like, oh, we can just sneak in under the walls. Couldn't you couldn't you also consider like Achilles like uh, a nepotism baby since he's got like a deity as his mother and she's like, oh, no, they're being so mean to Achilles. Go, please go help him. Yeah, although I don't think his mom is full Karen. Uh, She's not demanding to speak to the war's manager. (laughs) Um, or any of that kind of stuff, which, which I guess the war's manager is, um, Ares, the gods. I mean, Ares, yes, but also Athena's intervening and, uh, I, Athena's the big one. Uh, I think Neptune is on the side of Troy and Athena's on the side of the Greeks. I think so. Um, Although technically the the Trojans were still Greeks just from a different city-state, although also the concept of Greek didn't exist. I mean, that's just how they're depicted. That's how they're divided in the Iliad is the Trojans and the Greeks. Like those are the sides listed. Yep. So that's what I'm going to refer to them as when we discuss it. But we're not actually discussing the Iliad today because I don't think any of the monsters we're going to talk about in our set in our episode about Greek mythological monsters show up in the Iliad. I don't think there are any monsters in the Iliad as far as I remember. Nope, they all unless show you up consider in the Odyssey. like unless you consider like deities. But they're not monsters. I mean, perhaps some of them. Uh one might say Achilles is a monster because he's got magical superpowers. I'd go um, I go more with war criminal, but whatever. There's a lot of those on both sides. Uh, <laughs> the Trojan horse is a, could be a monster if you cast Awakening on it. True. Mo- uh, ancient warfare is just war crimes all the way down. Yes. Yeah, I mean... All warfare is just war <laughs> all crimes war all is the just way war down. Crimes. All war is criminal. This, um, this is true. War is bad, but... Planes are rad. War is war is um, bad, and war never changes. Yeah. So so therefore, if old gate wars were crimes, the new wars are crimes. I'll I'll go with that. Yeah. Yeah. So we've solved it by combining Fallout and um, Fallout and Greek mythology. <laughs> yeah, Fallout and Greek mythology. So uh, get in that vault where you will be sung at by sirens all day until you go insane. Yeah, that sounds like a plausible vault experiment. Um, I think there was one that was basically something like that, where it just played a musical note that made people insane or something. Um, possibly three. I know there. I know there was the one vault where just everybody, everybody had went nuts. That's like half of them. This is also true. But well, we've gone somewhat off topic. Uh, before we get into Monsters of Greek Mythology, we're going to talk about the Weekend Hobby, where we say what we've done this last Weekend Hobby. Ed, take it away. Oh, boy. 
Uh, it was a little bit of a light weekend hobby. I got drafted to work on a construction crew this week. So uh, a lot of very long and strenuous work days. So wasn't feeling super up to hobbying that much. But I did finally complete uh, my first of the little Dungeons and Dragons cats. Uh, it actually came out a lot better than I thought. The new Windsor & Newton Triple Ot brush that I got allowed me to get some really nice detail on the face. And you can even see the little green cat eyes with the little uh, vertical pupils. Uh, I also tried, instead of what I normally do on metallic, where I have the metallic over a dark base coat and then followed by a wash uh, to fill in the shadows. I did the wash, but the shadows weren't distinct enough because the armor this cat is wearing is very flat. And so the yeah. shadows, they eh, they didn't really do much for me. So I took some thinned out black paint and just kind of went to town in all the corners and crevices where the ink should have been and made everything stand out and it I really like how it turned out um it looks a little bit more on the impressionistic side of miniature painting compared to you know doing like all kinds of fancy faded shadows and all that but also this cat is really small so nobody's really gonna tell because it's gonna look even smaller from far away uh but I think I'm going to experiment more with adding in non-metallic pigments to my metallic paints to do new effects because I really like how this turned out. Um, yeah. I'm currently looking on my desk for my bag of flock to add that to the base, but I don't know where it went. So we'll find that later. Uh, what else did I do? I have stuff that's ready for priming, assuming it ever stops raining and or potentially snowing this weekend and we'll see how that turns out. And then I also received a Kickstarter that I had backed like three years ago and completely forgot about uh, for the most part. The only like rumblings of any updates that I had heard from the company was last February. Uh, they sent me a pin, which is a mushroom cloud because the game is uh, proliferation, the game of nuclear strategy. And they sent me this pin like the day after Russia invaded Ukraine. So I was like, thanks, guys. <laughs> Great timing. Um, I looked at the box. Um, I'm not quite sure what I think about it yet. The gameplay sounds interesting, but the presentation on it is pretty meh. It has a very standard military industrial complex kind of aesthetic to it. And uh I mean, you could have, there's so many, so many ways that you could have gone with that and the abilities and like strengths and weaknesses of the nations don't seem to quite line up with reality. Uh, I don't know why they call the, uh, the French, the agents of chaos. It seems kind of weird. Um, North Korea gets an economic miracle which really would have been more applicable had they done like a Cold War theme, like maybe 60s or 70s, which from an aesthetic standpoint, that's where I would have gone because then you could have done some really cool uh, like mid-modern, mid-century Cold War type aesthetic or like that Atomic Age vibe rather than just, you know, vaguely military and or diplomatic looking. But we'll, yeah, I think their art direction could have used some work. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll see how it goes. The box was actually a lot bigger than I expected. I was assuming that it was just going to be like a little box of cards, like how a lot of the Kickstarter stuff that I've been getting somewhat recently tends to be. But this one came in a big old box. So I was like, oh, this game is a lot uh, heftier than I expected. So uh, at some point we'll have to try it. I don't know when I'll be able to get a group of people big enough to have like most of the of the nations playing because I feel like two player, it's just going to be players lobbing nukes at each other and see who dies the least. So I think it'll be better with a full complement of players, but it'll just go on to the shelf of indeterminate playing in the future that I've amassed since the pandemic started. Yay. Yay. And then the saga of my Windsor and Newton brush continues. I think I'm going to try and exchange the uh 
number three brush that I got, or no, number one brush. Uh, I've tried conditioning it. I've tried to get it to reform the point. Uh, but as it is, the brush is pretty much unusable. And I would like to have a usable brush that, you know, if I paid 30 bucks for it, I want to get $30 worth of painting out of it. So we'll see what they say, because, yeah, I'm not impressed. Yeah. Yep. And that's my yeah. week. That's been your weekend hobby. My weekend hobby has been busy. Um, for starters, my D&D group, one of my Eberron groups, finished the campaign. Congratulations, you finished a campaign. You unlock an achievement. Yeah, this is only the second campaign of D&D I've finished, and we've been playing, like, official rules D&D since 2000-ish. Yep. What was, so, the, um, what was the first campaign you finished? Uh, Curse of Strahd mm. in 2020. Congratulations. Um, yeah, the, like, I mean, that was a from-the-book one, and it was the pandemic, so people literally had nothing else going on. I mean, um, I guess we did technically finish one in high school, but it was just kind of like, that's it. Did we? Game's over. Yeah, the one, the uh, campaign that featured the whirlwind. We finished that one. It was... Really? Because I didn't feel like that finished. I feel like we, like, killed a mid-boss, and then it ended. As far as I remember, like, we, we killed this, like, boss cleric dude, and the DM was like, yep, that's that's the campaign. It's over, and I was kind of like, "Oh, uh, I was a little bit anticlimactic." Climactic. Yeah, I didn't realize that that one had ended. Or maybe, I, I, or I, maybe I, it was a situation where it was kind of like a midpoint thing, and we got distracted with something else. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought had happened. But in any case, they finished the campaign. They had a big multi-part fight against uh, Overlord Demon, who had. Almost 300 hit points and a way Jesus. to get them back. Um, when he, they got sucked into the, like, crystal prison that he had been in. And he was able to, like, go to giant soul orbs and gain 50 hit points. Sweet. Um, and he had a whole bunch of attacks that did a lot of damage. And he he downed two party members. Oof. Um, and damaged the others quite substantially. He was clearly a real threat. Um, his, his, uh, bringer of sorrow ability where he just like did a gaze attack against somebody and eight D six psychic damage and stun them for an entire round. So they are totally useless for the next turn. He's so What's terrifying it? to look at. Well, he just like gazes into your eyes and you break down in sorrow. Death rays. Um, and I used, uh, Shelley poems for all of his dialogue. <laughs> like, I, I sound, I did like a real creepy voice and read poems about from like 18th century romantic poets about sorrow and death. Yeah, I'm not, Which, I'm not that creative of a DM. I never would have come up with something like that. So good on yeah, you. Yeah, I was like, oh. Oh, the creeping darkness wanes across the moon and the immortals learned that they're Two will die soon. You know, stuff like that. Um, which which made him very... I, I hope he made him super thematic. The party seemed very happy with the fight and the, you know, that that was the ending that they defeated him. And one of them summoned... used Summon Celestial to summon a Coatl. A For those not familiar with Eberron lore, Coatls are the Celestials that defeated these specific demons in the first place burned and are kind of like higher up angels in Eberron cosmology um because they're like dragon angels basically um that player had missed the session where the rest of the party found out all of that information oops so he summoned one totally on chance when he was just like uh what looks good quaddle so uh yeah they summoned the exact thing necessary to like give them an out once they defeated the guy. What a twist. It was pretty fun, actually, because he's just like, the the guy, the demon goes, you, you again? 
to the Coatl, and it's just like, oh, they know each other? And I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you meddling adventurers. Yeah. Um, so that, that campaign ended, uh, I did a brief epilogue where I said what the player, what the characters all do, and, you know, now that they're level 15 and rich and famous. <laughs> you can do whatever um, you want. Mostly it was, uh, sort of fulfilling their goals the ranger like went back to where he had came from and became like a leader of the community and eventually took on his own apprentices um which is a big thing because he had been uh trying to track down the killer of his master and bring justice to them and by justice i mean death it's the part of the game where you go back around to all the places on the map to find all the gwent matches you didn't finish no, we weren't doing that. <laughs> uh, the the party's artificer hung out with the Lord of Blades for a while because Warforged, until cool. he disagreed with the Lord of Blades's like goals and actions, Uh-oh. and ended up going to hang out with the dragons instead. Cool, uh, hanging with dragons is good. Yeah, the party's barbarian fought in every arena on the continent. Um before going on an expedition to Zendrick, the jungle continent full of giants and stuff, and disappearing into the jungle with the quote after telling his companions that, I'm gonna go punch a giant! <clears throat> and that was the last they ever saw of him. Uh, the cleric that was like a storm cleric uh, became a airship captain. I thought Took you were gonna say a weather, weather forecaster. Nope, airship captain. He became famous for, you know, doing airship captain things and fighting pirates. I mean, if you are a cleric who can control storms, uh, being able to modify the weather to pilot your airship would be a good deal. Oh, yeah. That that was basically... He had mentioned how much... He's like, oh, I want this airship. And I'm like, yes, we'll just do that. Can always um, guarantee yeah. a tailwind. Yep. So that was that. Uh, my other D&D group did not meet. Um, they had life stuff going on. Uh, and then I went and saw the D&D movie last night. Woo! I gotta say, it was solid. And Ed, you should go watch it soon so that we can do an episode about D&D movies where we talk about it and the one from 2001. Yeah, I think, uh, the wife and I were planning on seeing it somehow soon. Um, I had mentioned last night that you were going to see it and she sounded disappointed because I guess she was under the impression that we were going to, like go see it together but because of our pandemic caution i was like oh i just i just assumed that you would want to go like in the middle of the night uh it, to a movie theater like 15 miles from home where there's gonna be nobody else but i mean i was going to see it with my board game group ah so uh yeah i do think and it was like nobody the, the theater was annoyingly empty i was hoping that there would be more people going to see the D D movie but we also went to a late showing, so... Ah. Uh, I do think we're going to try and find an AMC theater that has the, uh... The kitschy tankard and D20, uh... Concessions boxes. So... Yeah. I'm gonna shell out, uh... Overpriced money for Plastic Tat, if I can. But yes, we should definitely, uh... Talk about that, and I may have to rewatch the old one because it's been a while since i've seen that one but i do remember seeing yeah. that one in theaters yep uh, we went as a group yep naturally our D um, group <laughs> yes um and oh my god this one is so much better uh i have to say if you're listening to this podcast go watch the D movie if you haven't already it's good it manages to ride the line of like referencing and clearly being set in the Faerun universe without, like, having to refer repeatedly to, like, deep mechanics. You don't... I mean, it refers to some mechanics, but it does that in a way that services the plot. You don't necessarily need to be a D&D &D nerd to get it. You do not. Um, if anything, I would say the most similar movie to it is probably something like Stardust. Mm. Um, where it's just a fun fantasy adventure. Um, 
maybe a little Guardians of the Galaxy as well. Yeah, I the think first one specifically. I think that's why my wife is more interested in it because, like, she won't watch like Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings or anything because she doesn't want to have to know all the backstory or have me like pause and explain to her what's happening uh, every twenty seconds. But she seems she seems well enough uh, interested in the D and D movie. So good times. Yep, yeah, go see it. And, uh, yeah, that's been basically mine. I'm uh, going to go play some board games with people this afternoon, so we'll have stuff to report for the next session, for the next podcast. Board games, yeah. So it's 20 minutes in, and let's get on to the main topic. Monsters from Greek mythology that are in D&D. Mm, and I guess just monsters Greece. from Greek mythology in general. Um, the first one we'll hit is the centaur. The, uh, centaur. The horniest of monsters. The... <laughs> the the what of monsters? The horniest of monsters. No, that would be the satyr. Ooh, yeah, that's a, I, that's a toss up. I feel like you could go either way on that one, but continue. Um, no, the the satyrs are definitely hornier. The centaurs are probably rapier, but uh, oh yeah, yeah, that's uh, I think that's the answer I was looking for. Yikes! Yes. Um, so centaurs in Greek mythology are half horse, half human. Lower body of a horse, upper body of a human, serious spinal issues of a chiropractor. What if you, what if you had like a reverse centaur do the body of a man with the upper torso of a horse? Wait, is that just a minotaur? That's just a minotaur with a horse head, yes. Shit. (laughs) We have that one, we will talk about it later. My attempts at derailing this conversation are not going well. Yeah, the Greeks, look, the Greeks covered all the, like, combine animal with something else, make monster. They, that was their thing, for the most part. I mean, it's an it's um, an easy way out, especially when you're the first ones to do it. Or not, I shouldn't say the first ones. Uh, one of the earliest ones to write it down. Yes. Um, so there are a couple of myths about the origins of centaurs. Um, one involving... Uh, a like cloud spirit who pretended to be Hera in order to trick a guy who was going to who who wanted to sleep with Hera into sleeping with her instead, and then their offspring was centaurs for some reason. Um, another one was just a guy who fucked some horses. Sounds and, about right for thus, Greek mythology. Yeah, um, the guy named Centaurus. <laughs> who, who, who slept with some like special magical horses and uh since he was um part god or something he thus uh, centaurs um according to greek mythology they lived in various places uh, a lot of places that you might find wild horses essentially there's some suggestion that the centaur myths started because the early Greeks ran into people who rode horses and the early <laughs> Greeks were like, holy shit, you can, you what? There's a horse, there's a guy on a horse? It's like Boba Fett Clearly finding out you can ride thing. a rancor. <laughs> oh God, that, yeah, that's, uh, mm. um, yeah, they're, Sometimes they teach people things like Ch- Chiron. Uh, sometimes they just fight people. Um, there's one of their major myths where they um, fight a guy named Lapithus uh, because they tried to carry off all the women from his city. Is that is that uh, the is that the wedding? The wedding? Yes. Myth? Yeah. Don't all invite centaurs. They are invited to, to a wedding and they're like, "Hey." These ladies are fine, and then they try to take them away to presumably not do great things. And then uh, Theseus and some other people who were there went up and fought the centaurs. Um, again, it 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 could be sort of based off the notion of horse riding raiding parties coming into your town and stealing your shit. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, that's a lot of historians think that that's kind of the the notion of where this stuff comes from. 
surprise cameo from the Mongols. Yeah, well, um, any sort of nomad group. Uh, apparently the Aztecs also had the same, like, surprise, oh my god, half-horse people when they saw Spanish conquistadors initially. Interesting. So it's, it, it's not as, like, we have some historical evidence that the first interaction with somebody riding a horse is just like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> um, I mean, if you've ever seen uh, cops on horseback, yeah, uh, a person on a horse is very intimidating. Yeah. Horses are big. Horses are big. Um, in Dungeons & Dragons, however, uh, centaurs show up in the very earliest book in the 1974 original D&D &D set. I would only assume um, as much. Yeah, in fact, I'm just going to go ahead and say most of the monsters we're talking about show up in first edition or like pre-first edition. Just, um, just ripping straight from the classics. Literally. Yeah, because Gygax just, he picked monsters everybody knew and already kind of could think about in their mind. When I say centaur, you have an image already. So it's pretty straightforward. And in fact, a lot of these actually showed up in Chainmail, hmm. which was the um, pre-D&D miniature combat game that became Dungeons & Dragons, because in Chainmail, the, the big difference between was that it added a section of here, now you can fight fantasy monsters instead of just having medieval combat. Ah, that would make sense. Um, I didn't I didn't get far enough into Chainmail to find like all the fantasy supplement stuff. Yeah, the fantasy supplement was in the back of the book and is kind of what spawned D&D in the first place. But the the concept there of using known mythological creatures means that these are known mythological creatures, and so they're the ones that are going to get uh, used. Makes life easier. Yeah, centaurs have appeared in all of the different settings. Um, they've had a few different variations, like sea centaurs, <laughs> desert nice. centaurs... Um, and then, you know, the other, like, things that are, like, different animals under the sun, different animals instead of horses, but those are different monsters, and actually some of those show up in Greek as, Greek mythology as well. Um, we're not really going to talk about those today. They are typically nomads, or, um, I mean, yeah, they're, they're typically portrayed as being nomads, because... That's kind of what the centaur mythology is. Um, a lot of times they use bows. Again, that's drawn from Greek mythology where the centaurs were good at bows. Yeah, um, I, for I forgot they were archers. Yeah, I mean, they taught people archery. Um, Chiron, the Greek mythology, taught Achilles how to play the lyre, which must have been, again, a huge pain in the ass given that we've depicted Achilles as a frat bro already. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, I don't want to play this stupid harp. I want to go outside and stab people with a spear. Or he's, like, playing an acoustic version of Creep. Yeah, or the, the Nirvana songs. Yeah, he's just, just all all grunge all the time. Yeah, Achilles in flannel, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the centaurs, uh, they've been around in D&D. &D. Um... I'm not sure that they're... Their depiction in D&D has always kind of just been as a background monster. Uh, they've been playable in a few different editions. Um, I believe they are playable in 5th edition. Uh, although there is some... Uh, I think there might have been in the Mythic Odysseys of Theranos campaign setting made them playable. Oh, they've got yeah, some that weird... would make sense. They've got some weird stuff because the... 5th edition D&D &D rules are not good for races that are not medium-sized and have two legs. Because <laughs> um, minotaurs... Uh, they had to make minotaurs medium-sized, which means they're smaller than a horse and can theoretically ride a horse. <laughs> um, and also, things like, how, how does a minotaur go up a ladder? You mean a centaur? Uh, how does a centaur go up a ladder? I would like um, to see a centaur riding a centaur. That'd be, or a centaur riding a horse. That'd be pretty funny. 
you can actually mount a centaur onto a centaur because they can because uh, a me medium-sized creature can ride a centaur and centaurs <laughs> are medium-sized creatures so 5e D, D does not do creature size real well let's just go with that and yeah, nobody said 5e was perfect Yes, uh, in fact, it's a very imperfect system, but it's also a very good entry point system for a D&D. An imperfect system made by imperfect humans. Yes, as opposed to a perfect system made by imperfect Greek gods. Because uh, the Greek gods are very imperfect. Um, bring, bring, bring that back in the deities. Make, make deities imperfect again. I mean... Most non-monotheistic deities are imperfect. And speaking of imperfect deities, let's talk about the Minotaur. Oh, boy. Uh, the Minotaur is a half-man, half-bull. Um, it's the upper half of... Uh, basically, it's a big dude with a bull's head. Is the... The head and tail of a bull and the body of a man. Um... In Greek mythology, he dwelt at the center of the labyrinth, an elaborate maze-like construction designed by the architect Daedalus on the, um, like, palace of Minos in Crete, and was killed by the hero Theseus, who, uh, was kind of a dick? Um, I mean, I don't you bust into somebody's labyrinth home and kill them, that's a home invasion. yeah. I mean, Theseus is one of the less dickish Roman hero, uh, Greek heroes, so, eh. He, he mostly just runs around and fights monsters. Yeah, I, I don't have much of an opinion on Theseus. Yeah, um, the, uh, the myth of the creation of the Minotaur is, um, oh boy. Uh, speaking of imperfect gods, Poseidon sent a bull, a, a magic bull, to the uh, king of Crete. Uh, the bull, the king was supposed to sacrifice the bull to honor Poseidon. He decided he liked the bull and was going to keep him. Um, to punish him, Poseidon made the guy's wife fall in love with the bull. Oh, boy. And then she... Um, and then nine months later, a centaur was... Uh, and then nine months later, a minotaur was born. I mean, I feel like if if you're sacrificing to a deity, it should be, like, an actual sacrifice, not, not like, some kind of, like, re-gifting of a thing that the deity gave to you and said, hey, sacrifice this to me. That seems like too much of an easy out. I mean, again, imperfect Greek gods. <laughs> uh, yeah. Nine months later, the Minotaur was born. Um, the the uh, old laugh joke. Sire, the king has the your wife has given birth to a terrifying monster. Architect, I will build an elaborate labyrinth to house the monster. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, and then of course it dwelt in the maze and um. Yeah, sometimes, like, it's, it may or may not have to do with, like, the Athenians beating the Minoans at something and, like, beating them in a war and then writing a story about how they killed somebody fancily, because the Minoans' civilization used the bull as their, like, primary symbol. Yep. Um, and did some fancy stuff. So it may have just been the, like, Athenian and mainland Greeks shit-talking on Minos. And I think, uh, Gnosis also, the palace complex there, has, like, a very maze-like structure to it, and I think a lot of that was also uh, ancient Greeks trying to figure out, like, why the hell did they build this maze of a palace and be like, oh, there must have been some kind of monstrosity down here, apparently. I mean, uh, that's one theory. There's no labyrinth that was, like, uncovered by archaeological digs. The palace was big, yeah, but it's not... It's not, like... It's not the 
best laid out. It kind of looks like the architect was maybe a little bit drunk when they designed it, but I mean, it's like, yeah, it's, yeah, just, it's just a palace. You guys are reading too much into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I personally, I think it probably has more to do with just the, like adding shit to the myth to make it more fun. It's, it's being um, a dick with than propaganda. A labyrinth. Yeah, it, it's very much Greek Minoan propaganda. Now, the Minotaur in Dungeons and Dragons, on the other hand, has been around since first edition, like I said. Um, they are large bull man people. Uh, they are typically evil, monstrous humanoids. Um, they build labyrinths and live in them. Um, sometimes they have magical powers to, like, trap people in mazes um that feels kind of anticlimactic that the minotaurs build their own labyrinths i was just hoping that labyrinths just spawned naturally just as a force of nature and the minotaur is like drawn to it that could be an interesting horror setting yeah idea where there are like naturally spawning eldritch things and the various monsters are drawn to them like labyrinths and mazes and like minotaurs being drawn to labyrinths and i don't know what else you got but think about like haunted things and ghosts being drawn to them and so on and so forth but this labyrinth is mine it was made for me yes that was kind of where i was going with this um Minotaurs are immune to the maze spell, which the maze spell is, um, causes people to get lost in an illusionary maze. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, so yeah. Uh, Minotaurs tend to be just big smashy dudes with axes and horns and, uh, yeah. Minimal armor, maximum smashing and maximum muscle i mean if you're maximum gonna have muscle. if you're gonna have all that all that swole beef on there you can't cover it up with with uh armor yes um yeah minotaurs are pretty straightforward uh they make an interesting like mid to low level fight for a party that like has to deal with a labyrinth um and then they make a good foot soldier like lieutenant type thing for a higher level baddie who has um pulled some pulled out a minotaur to go fight the heroes um typically they're vaguely related to demons um specifically things like uh, giron or baphomet um one theory is that they are related to the Lady of Pain and one of the original, like, guardians of the interdimensional maze prisons that she creates. Huh. I like that one. Um, or that the first Minotaur was due to a curse placed on a human fighter who wanted to be as strong as a bull. Oops. Be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Which, yeah, I kind of, like, think that's fun. Um, yeah. I, you know... Minotaurs are interesting. Uh, they, they're real thematic, especially because they're tied to the labyrinth. Um, and yeah, they're, they're a good choice for mid to low level parties. Um, cause they're not that high level, honestly. Their, their challenge rating is only like three, I think in fifth edition. If so, my, if my dwarf fortress, uh, civilians can beat a minotaur to death with their bare hands, your, your D&D party can probably take care of it. Yeah. Um, now what your low level D&D party probably can't take care of is a Hydra. No, no, they can't. Hail Hydra. <laughs> uh, the Hydra, uh, specifically in Greek mythology, the Lenarian Hydra, uh, is a multi-headed dragon. It's a water monster. It's serpentine. It has a large number of heads. Um, sometimes, uh, like, of uh, varying numbers. Sometimes it starts with three. Sometimes it starts with seven. Your um, mileage may vary. You, you, it depends on how many have been cut off already, right? Um, the monster is 
a multi-headed dragon serpent thing um, with poisonous breath and blood so virulent that even its scent was deadly. So lots of poison attacks. Um, in some versions of the myth, when a head is cut off, it grows two new heads. Um, in the second labor of Hercules, Heracles, however you wish to pronounce it, um, he has to go kill it. Um, because, uh, honestly, the labors of Hercules were, Hercules, you done fucked up. Now go complete 12 impossible tasks. <laughs> Which, and his response is, uh, okay. Okay. And then he, go, and then he does. Um. You're like, well, we didn't, we didn't really expect you to complete it, but, uh, good job. Good job? Yes. Um, so, you know, Hercules goes to the lake where it lives. He masks up because you, you wear a mask to protect yourself from, like, airborne things like poisonous fumes. Um, shot some flaming arrows at it to get it to come out. And then either using, uh, and then he used a weapon, either a sickle, a sword, or a club, depending on uh, what exact myth and painting and vase you're looking at, um, to start cutting off heads. Or smashing them off if he's using the club. Um, and then he had... Realizing that he... They kept growing back. He got his nephew to show up and... Um, use a torch to... Cauterize the stumps. Cauterize the wounds. Yeah, so that it couldn't do that. Um, and then the, one of my favorite bizarre bits... Is seeing that Hercules was winning the struggle... Hera sent a giant crab to distract him. Crab it. battle. It, like, I will send a crab to distract him. Oh, he killed the crab. Damn it. Why did, why did I think this was a good plan? I think Hera is also more of a dick than she gets credit for. Oh, yeah. I mean, she and Zeus are a perfect pair. They're the Pam and Jim of Greek mythology. They're both assholes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hercules kills all of it except for one head, um, which he, like, cuts off and is still alive. Uh, and then dips his arrows in the poisonous blood so that he can use them later. Um, yeah. So, sometimes uh, the crab that he kills then becomes the constellation Cancer. <laughs> um and there is the constellation of Hydra, which, again, is drawn from this a lot of times. Uh, later in the labors, he uses the arrows that were dipped in the poisonous blood of the Hydra to kill some other things, uh, such as some birds and a giant. And later, the centaur Nessus. Um, bringing it back around. Yeah, bringing it back. Uh, because I think Nessus... Um, Yeah, it was generally being a dick at the time. I don't remember uh, much of my 12 labors of Hercules. So I'm not much help um, there. I remember he had to defeat the lion, the hydra. He had to move a river. He had to get the apples no, no, no. of the Hesperides. He had to get the apples. He had The moving a river was he had to clean out the Oh, that's stables. right. He had to clean out the stable and he moved the river and to so clean it out. And so he moved a river to do it. Um... Which, yeah, the, if it, if the it works apples, and it's stupid, it's not stupid. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, let me just pull up the 12 labors of Hercules. Yeah, I think the apples of the Hesperides, they were like guarded by a dragon and or a snake, depending on your translation. Um... Yeah. The... Slay the Numerian lion, slay the Linarian hydra, capture a deer, um, capture a boar, clean the stables in a single day, uh, kill some birds, uh, capture the Cretan bull, steal some horses, uh, man-eating horses. I mean, honestly, this um, just sounds like a God's to-do list, and they're just like, I, did, I can't do I don't want to do it. 
Uh, obtain the girdle of Hippolyta, queen uh, of the Amazons. Uh, uh, I remember that cattle. one because they like they fall in love like the instant he plunges the sword into her heart, and yeah, he's like, um, "Oh no, I've killed her." Yeah, but but also like sometimes his labors are because he accidentally killed his wife. Um, so we're going the we're going the God of War route. Yeah, like. Bro's got a lot of labors. Um, Rise steal and grind. the cattle from a giant, uh, steal three golden apples, and then capturing and bringing back Cerberus. Which really, I think that last one is like, Hades is just like, uh, fine, go take Cerberus for a walk. <laughs> I feel like there could be like, good like, animated comedy potential. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, l let's be fair. Heracles in the underworld meets two people who had been imprisoned by Hades for attempting to kidnap Persephone. <laughs> don't do that. Um, You're not going to yeah, get away with it. Don't don't kidnap Hades' wife. Hades is a wife guy. He really likes his wife. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, implement the 12 labors of Hercules into your D&D &D campaign. Yes. Be good um, for some yucks. That, that would be a pretty... That could just be a full-on D&D &D campaign. Like, yeah, it could. the party has fucked something up, and one of the gods shows up and goes, Alright, you chuckle fucks. Here's what you gotta do. In order to save the world, I have 12 jobs for you. And then they about partway through you realize that it literally is just the jobs to do the gods to do list. You take your take the dog for a walk. We have to write this idea down somewhere, otherwise we're gonna forget it. Yeah, I would definitely also like switch up the order. Yeah. Um make the uh case definitely any, the Hydra should not be second. In um, case any nerds get wise, be like, I know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, give your in, give your first level party a, a Hydra to fight. <laughs> See no, how the, that the goes. first level party fights the lion. Would would go slay the lion. Um and make it a better lion. Or make it a pack Surprise, of Surprise, it's a no. displacer beast. I mean, yeah, you could do that. So D D Hydras are, you know, five to seven heads they're reptilian horrors with a crocodilian body and multiple heads on long serpentine necks um if a head is cut off it regrows them quickly uh their origin story is generally that uh tiamat is responsible the multi-headed queen of dragons yeah that sounds about right yeah uh, the exact re re way that she does it is up to debate but usually it's just tiamat She's a she's a dragon um, god. She can do what she wants. She's an evil dragon god. If she's going to make a reptilian monster with multiple heads, she'll do that. Um, Hydras are generally pretty tough to fight. They make as many attacks as they have heads. Nice. Um, and they do bite and piercing damage. Um, the 5th edition version doesn't have any poison attacks, huh. which I think is kind of an issue previous editions did um and i would say to definitely put some poison on there if you're interested in making it slightly more of a challenge because like the poisonous element of the hydra is one of the core parts of greek mythology true um they do have the regeneration where if a head has been cut off it grows two heads and regains hit points for each head that it grows um you know stuff like that they are a good they're challenge rating eight so they're good for a like tier two party um they make good like watch monsters as well if you have a powerful person or a powerful higher up monster who has a hydra like guarding the entrance to their lair kind of sounds like something a black dragon would have as a guard or i would think a beholder as well yeah, Beholder, that'd be a good one. Uh, Beholder having a Hydra that, like, guards the entrance, so you have to fight a Hydra, and then you get inside, and, oh, Beholder, how fun! Beholder with snake heads instead of eye stalks. Yeah, I'm sure that's a 
I'm sure that's one of the variants of Beholders. There are a million of them. Uh, that's a that's a Gorgon Beholder, Medusa Beholder, Gorgolder, Gorgolder. Yes. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Greek mythology isn't the only one to have a multi-headed dragon creature as a monster that gets defeated by their like. Mi- Big mythological hero. Wait, wait. Uh, Japanese... I know this. Oh, I was, I was gonna say I know this one. It's Japan. Yeah, uh, Japanese has the Yamata no Orochi, the eight-headed, eight-tailed serpent. Um. Uh, yeah, fearsome serpent with eight heads and eight tails, and it like rampaged across the mountains and stuff. Their hero was a little smarter than Hercules. Um. And he tricked it into, um, he built a bunch of gates and then set up a bunch of casks of alcohol and tricked it into sticking its heads through the gates so it could drink the alcohol and then cutting them off one at a time. Yeah, that's a solid plan. Yeah, the like I said, the Japanese mythological hero, um, who is... Susano. Susano. Uh... Clearly, a little bit, um, you know, a little better planner than Hercules. Uh, but enough about hydras. I think we got time for one more monster. And because we mentioned it, it's the Medusa. Spooky! Yeah, spooky lady! Um, human female with living venomous snakes in place of hair. If you gaze into their eyes, you turn to stone. Um, they're related to various deities in some manner. Um, and in Greek mythology, Medusa is beheaded by the Greek hero Perseus, who uses her head that keeps its ability to turn things to stone as a weapon. Um, and then gave it to Athena so that Athena could stick it on her shield and continue to use it as a weapon. Um... Yeah, they're... Typically, it was a trio of sisters rather than simply one, and Medusa is the, like, best well-known of them. Um, also, they have wings in Greek mythology. I forgot wings they had wings. and snake for hair. Um, it, 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 originally, they were supposed to be, like, horrifying monsters until around the 5th century BC when um, they start, like... Sculptors and painters are like, you know, horrifying monsters are all well and good, but what if I made her hot? <laughs> like um, I like I said a couple episodes ago, people are horny at all places at all times. Yes, history is full of people who are horny and uh, apparently like monster ladies. Um, the in a poem written in 490 BC, they speak of fair-cheeked Medusa, which I mean. Thinking about it, that's 490 BC. So if he was writing it today, he'd be like, "Big titty goth GF Medusa." It's uh the precursor to the Monster Girl subreddit. I mean, Greek mythology is 100 percent the precursor to the Monster Girl subreddit. I mean, <laughs> mo- half the ones in there come from Greek mythology: Medusa, Arachne, um, yeah, just, just most of them are from this. Um, yeah, the, so they're in Greek mythology, the snakes and stuff, the, um, yeah, uh, there's some theoretical idea that perhaps the myth is based off of, like, a snake worshipping cult that the Greeks took out. Yeah, there Um, was, uh, uh... I think one of the early civilizations in the Cyclades, I think they had kind of like a, a thing for snakes. I can't remember, but I do remember like yeah. there's a, there's a fairly famous statue that if you take like any kind of classical art history, it's one of the first ones that you come across where it's uh, some woman without a top holding a snake in each hand. At least I, I'm yeah. pretty sure that's uh, from the ancient Greek area. I could be wrong. It could be from another another civilization. It's been a while since I've been in college. Stop criticizing me. 
Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I remember there are some sort of early religion cults that had snakes as a big part of it. And the Greeks probably rolling in and conquering their shit and stealing all their treasures. Um, so that would seem to be a pretty straightforward explanation for where this myth comes from. Um, the monster, in Dungeons & Dragons terms, is, again, a classic. It's been around since first edition. Uh, hot lady with snakes for hair who turns people to stone. I mean, stone pretty straightforward. Foxy. Hairstyles, a writhing mass of one-foot-long serpents. Yep, that's the hairstyle. Um, typically, they are somewhat serpentine-based. Uh, their skin is somewhat scaly. Their eyes glow. Um, sometimes it's be they are turned into Medusa as curses. Um, and can be male, male or female. Other times, they're, you know... Go like an actual race. Go gender nonconformity. I can get behind that. Yeah. Um, the, some variants of them are like the male Medusas don't have the serpents or the petrifying gaze, but are just really strong and like a other gaze attack. Not something I think is real interesting. Be like, oh yeah, there's a male one, but it fights you in hand to hand combat because it's strong. I thought you were gonna. Oh, I thought you were gonna say a dumb. serpent dick. That was that's where my my brain went. We're not talking about the UNT today. <laughs> the UNT or where you'd go for that sort of thing. Um, Medusas are immune to the petrifying stare of other Medusa, but can be turned into stone by their own gaze if there's a mirror or reflective surfaces. <laughs> Curses which, uh, foiled by a mirror. I mean, I guess you get. Medusa wearing sunglasses hanging out with vampires because none of them are going to have mirrors around. <laughs> um, honestly, that's uh, something worth considering, I guess. Um, also, I, being shapeshifters, uh, vampires may or may not be immune to the petrification stuff. Interesting. Um, so I will consider that pairing for a future D&D &D monster setup. Medusas have also Medusa. uh, Medusas have also shown up in uh, Age of Sigmar, which I think is pretty cool. The uh, uh, Dark Elf faction from Warhammer Fantasy Battles, as part of like the continuity between Warhammer and Age of Sigmar, the like the Witch Elves and the sector of Dark Elf society that worshipped Chaos uh, are now openly chaos worshippers and a lot of them have turned into medusa like creatures and it's really cool yeah so medusas they're fun um they're, they make good challenges uh they're also pretty great because you can always like hint at their being there by putting statues of terrified looking adventurers around the place <laughs> this doesn't look ominous at all yeah um I did a thing with that in one of my campaigns. There wasn't actually a Medusa in the ruins, um, but it had been a like long lost shrine to Medusas or um, Basilisk and, and stuff. So there were a bunch of traps relating to it and a bunch of like serpentine stuff um, and a room where you got turned to stone if you spent too long in it. Um yeah, I'd probably yeah, say don't was, hang out in that room. Yeah, and I think there may have been a basilisk at the end, but there was not actually a Medusa. It was just Medusa kind of themed, mm -hmm. which the players got pretty paranoid about how do we stop this um, this thing. And the trick for it was there was a like Medusa on the floor, like the head of a Medusa on the floor, and you needed to cover its eyes to prevent the it from turning everyone in the room to stone. Mm -hmm. Um. Which they they figured out eventually, as they were only partially turned to stone. Just just a little bit of stone. Yeah, just slightly stone. And yeah, that's I think what we're going to talk about for our Greek mythology monsters. I would say use them, use them all, use all the monsters. It's um, free source material. It's great source material. Uh, yeah, go ahead and use them. And we have a segment on this podcast called the Week 
Skin Hobby, which we already did. But we also have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner, which Ed is going to talk about a board game. Yay! Uh, it's not really a board game. It's actually a war game. Uh, it's one that I can't remember if I had mentioned on this show before. I may have mentioned it in passing, but not actually really talked about it. Uh, it's a game called uh, Tomorrow's War from uh, Osprey Publishing. It's had a it had a second edition that came out in 2011 so it is a bit of an oldie but that means that you can find the uh the book for it fairly reasonably priced if you look around um i wouldn't say it's the greatest war game that i've ever played but it is it has interesting things that it does uh the background of it it's kind of a generic 24th century future um has kind of the star wars like low tech future thing kind of going on but basically like all the major powers from the 21st century they've all flown off into space and have started their own space empires uh you get china the soviet union is back somehow uh you get the somehow the soviet union returned yep uh you get the united states you get brazil um i think india shows up as does pakistan uh essentially like all the nuclear powers uh plus brazil just kind of find their way into space and they create their own space civilizations and then they fight because that's what great powers do um and the gimmick for this war game is that warfare is always asymmetrical so there is no real like point balancing system which I find interesting, but is also a little bit of a hindrance because the game is also played uh, exclusively with scenarios, which helps with the unbalanced aspect of it. But unless you're going with the scenarios that are in the book, um, you're kind of on your own as far as what you want to do army composition wise. And your mileage may vary on how fun a particular game is. Uh, depending on how much you're into getting your face stomped in by your opponent, because they have, like, vastly overpowered uh, setup compared to yours. Uh, But the focus on objectives I really like, and the asymmetricalness is nice. Um, It has some mechanics relating to troop quality, where uh, irregulars or, like, conscriptees don't roll very well and they use smaller dice they'll use like a d6 or a d4 and in addition to their combat ability as troops also how well they're supplied makes a difference so you can have very well supplied draftees who they're still only rolling like maybe a d8 as opposed to well-trained elites who are rolling like a D12 or maybe a D20. Um, So there's a lot of variability in the kinds of troops that you can have, but it does make the record keeping and the crunchiness kind of a pain. And I remember having a hard time remembering like which troops would roll, which types of die dice. And it can change also depending on like how many troops are left in a unit. If they lose too many guys, they'll go down in power. So their dice will change, which is kind of a pain to keep track of. And then, uh, what was the, oh, the last like gimmick is that it has an act react system where if units take actions within the line of sight of other units, they get to take an action, even though it's technically not their like initiative phase. So if you have dudes who just run across the, a a field of fire and get seen by other dudes, the dudes who see them can take a shot. And then if there is perhaps, you know, another group of guys on the opposite side of the field who see those get those guys take a shot, can take a shot at those guys who are taking the shot at the guys running across the field. So you get this, you can get these interesting like chain reactions where one thing will happen and it kind of causes like this cascade of chaos across the battlefield, which I mean, that's kind of how warfare works. One thing happens and a whole bunch of bullshit follows behind it. And it can lead to some really interesting scenarios. But again, the bookkeeping can be kind of a pain. So if you're willing to play a war game that 
may need a bit more thought and uh, less just rote memorization of the rules. You might have to sit for a minute and kind of figure things out. Um, it's one that I'd recommend trying. I enjoyed it uh, playing it. I'd like to play it some more. Uh, but it's one of those ones where you're going to have to like kind of tinker around with the rules a little bit just because it is very different from a lot of stuff that you would likely find. It's not super well refined, um, but it is definitely an interesting experience. I'll give it that. Yeah. So if you want to fight in tomorrow's war, join tomorrow's Navy. Yep. Tomorrow's Navy today. The Navy of the future in the past. Cool. So that's been our show. Uh, we're as always, we're Noel country. Follow us on social media. Uh, join a union, support your friendly local game shop, um, support charities that are good. Uh, yeah. Do the things Ed's about to tell you to do. Oh, uh, you can follow me on Adam Madness on Instagram. You can see me. I'm probably going to post a couple of things. Uh, the cat is now finished uh, with the exception of the basing, but I might just wait until all the cats are done to do that. Uh, I'm also working on a, uh, statue here which was one of the first things that i 3d printed that'll probably show up there uh you can listen to me talk about uh gender queerness and trans stuff on there as well that's kind of what's been mostly going on with my instagram at the moment just because i'm taking a little bit of a hobby hiatus i guess you could say uh you can support your lgbtqia uh, ia plus charities uh don't talk to the cops uh, sink Florida to the bottom of the Gulf. Uh, yes. And go Knowles. Go Knowles. Go Knowles. <laughs>